0: Welcome to Breaking Cyber Barriers. I'm your host, Liz Fajinas, cybersecurity recruiter, certified executive coach, trusted advisor, and partner of Philip Madison, a woman-owned cybersecurity search firm with over 20 years of experience. My podcast will delve into the world of cybersecurity, uncovering trends and exploring its limitless potential. So join me to hear how industry leaders share their experiences and strategies for success. welcome to Breaking Cyber Barriers. Today, our special guest is Sam Curry. Sam is the vice president and CISO of Zscaler, and he's also an amazing mentor with three-plus decades of experience as an entrepreneur, an infosec expert, and former executive at companies such as RSA, Arbor Networks, Computer Associates, McAfee Cyber Reason, and more. So, Sam is dedicated to empowering defenders in cyber conflict and fulfilling the promise of security, enabling a safe, reliable, connected world. And he's also a public speaker. He hosts his own podcast, and he also sits on select boards and publications. Today, Sam is going to discuss the practicalities and benefits of zero-trust architecture. So, welcome, Sam. That was a big introduction.
1: (laughs) That was huge. Yeah, Liz, thank you for researching all that and putting it together. No, I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. So, before we get started on the topic, can you tell us why you joined Zscaler and what your role entails and what they're about? Sure. So,
1: um, part of it was in your introduction. Um, I sat in a... um, in an audience years ago, it was an IDC conference, and I, I saw, on the one hand, we were approaching $150 billion a year spent in cybersecurity, and the next presentation where the CISO who said, there's those who've been hacked and those who don't know it. and this is over a decade ago, and you heard this too, I'm sure, lots. And I sat, and the cognitive dissonance just, I couldn't handle the fact that we, we'd spent nearly a trillion dollars in a decade, you know, backtracking, and that we had to sit there and hear about how we're losing. And that really bothered me And uh, you know, you named some great brands that I had worked at and I'd been congratulating myself until that point. I said, I can't, I can't sit here in another decade and be in the same place. So I committed myself to deciding to go to companies that I felt could change that equation because the attackers are getting better, frankly, at a faster rate than defenders are. The proficiency is increasing faster. So. Why did I join Zscaler? In a nutshell, I mean, yeah, great company, great people. I've I've always liked Jay Chaudhry, our, our CEO. I think he's really an amazing man. But I really believe the vision and zero trust, which is what we're going to talk about today, and the technology are one of the few things that can change that equation. Mm-hmm. And and I make decisions for my career to do that. Where can I apply myself as a lever where my efforts can have the, the greatest chance to affect the change like that? As for my role... Um, you know, I, I'm part of a team of folks. Some of it is external facing and thought leadership and working with customers and partners. Some of it's internal working with uh, the internal security team and with IT. Uh, and some of it is, is of course on the risk side. How do we, how do we, uh, take the right risks for the right, acceptable risk for acceptable return? Um, and as a general executive, right. Uh, how do I work on things, uh, from a company perspective? So all of the above, if, if that makes sense, Liz.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting, diverse role.
1: Yeah, but that's fun, right? I mean, uh, I, I've done highly operational roles, uh, engineering, manager, SVP engineering a few times, CTO, uh, RSA, I was a CTO, and at Arbor Networks, uh, which were in your list, uh, CSO, and and head of product. I mean, um, when, I, after I, when I exited the 90s and the startup and early early government side work, I uh, went into the product management side, always in cyber, except for a stint at MicroStrategy, which was business intelligence. Um, and so I went sort of from being a security uh, person, an engineer, uh, and a QA and a doc writer. I went from that side into product management and then back to the tech with CTO. And eventually, having been at so many cybersecurity companies and touched so many different parts of cyber, and being responsible for some terrible technologies along the way, I just have to admit, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I was involved in things like SIM, my apologies to everybody in DLP and and stuff like that, but learned a lot of lessons along the way. Um, Having done that, I figured, you know, uh, it was time to be a practitioner as well. And and so I made the shift to being a CISO and this this is my fifth time in various forms of CISO or CSO.
0: That's amazing.
1: It's fun and a great career, great people too.
0: You know, to be able to have fun is the important factor in your career, right? Yeah, and
1: um, and paying it forward and working, uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. People say it's it—it's certainly true in my case and paying it forward, I think, is important. One of the greatest things is seeing people who've worked for me uh, pass me. And I know that may sound weird, but I know you coach a lot of people. Yeah. I coach and mentor people, but I get a kick out of how well some of the people that I've I've seen and uh, have hired knowing that they were potentially smarter than me or better than me and then seeing them go on and actually fulfill that. that that I got to tell you, if and when I retire, if I get the chance to sit down and look at things, that's what I'll be most proud of, I think. That that, and of course, if I actually fulfill the mission of of eventually beating these bad guys out there, right?
0: No, I agree with you. <clears throat> it's a great accomplishment.
1: It will be. It will, I'm not there yet. Right. Uh, yeah. I, 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 saw, I saw Jackie Chan get a, uh, the, the, the famous actor, yeah. get a lifetime achievement award. And I, and I think when he stood on stage, I'm going to get it wrong. He said, it's really, he said, thank you. But he said, I'm not done yet. Uh, so, uh, and I'm certainly no Jackie Chan and I've not got a lifetime achievement award. But there's so much to do for all of us.
0: I agree. I agree. So, moving into the topic today, what is Zero Trust really and what is their journey about?
1: So I, I used to be a skeptic. I would call myself a zero trust skeptic because I sat there and said, "Well, you never get to zero. So what are they all what are they all talking about and, and John Kindervag um actually coined the term at one point point. it just resonated. it sounded right. Um, but when I heard it, I'm like, uh-uh, no, I don't believe it and 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 I said, well, look, as soon as you, if you really had zero trust, you'd have to create something that would provision just in time and then take it away but continuously verify. And that provisioning layer would itself be hackable. And uh, and then I realized, oh, so that's that's what we've got to do to some degree. So it's a principle of least trust. And then I understood, then I really got it. Uh, now, if I if I go back in time to before, Z, in the early days of Zscaler, um, I was asked, and of course, I was at EMC and RSA who invested in Zscaler in the early days. I said, before the term existed, I said, what I want is a fine-grained authorization System that will work at scale and it will provision and enforce uh, that authorization and uniquely path it. Uh, And what I realized was I was describing a system that could deliver zero trust later, but I didn't have the language for it at the time. We're talking, you know, 12, 13 years ago now. now the simplest business definition I'll give you first, because I've given this a lot of thought as have folks at Zscaler and beyond, there's some good work at the CSA, for instance, and some of our competitors too. It is to provision only what's needed for the business, uh, when it needs it. And for as long as it needs it, that's the simplest definition. And that the word only in there is the hard thing. So, so what does that mean? There is trust in the system, but it's only what's required. It's the minimal trust that's required. And that, I think, is a key differentiator. Now, if you do this right, you do wind up transforming much of what you do in IT, in engineering, in in the app space, and in security, because your risk is proportional to how much trust that you take. And so what you want is to get as much trust out of the system as you can. Um, And does that make sense just to start, Liz?
0: Yeah, it it does. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you think, and forgive my lack of knowledge of this, but What do you think it is technically, and how do people do it?
1: Well, um, a lot of people throw different terminology out there and mean it in different contexts. For instance, people will say zero trust in an authentication context, they'll say. Um, And usually what they really mean is continuous authentication in that context. Now, there are definitions. Uh, NIST, for instance, has a specification uh, about what is zero trust. Um, They may mean it in a data context. Um, what I mean it in is usually a network context. So ZTNA is what you'll hear, right? So, so zero trust network access. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that context, what it means is you could think of it, it among other things, as a replacement for an alternate to VPN technology, which effectively extends the, the perimeter or the the wall of the castle, if you will, out to remote points. Now that's a good thing to start with because those remote points need to be brought into the perimeter, but it's still perimeter thinking, right? It's still Moat and Castle thinking. Instead, what we should be doing is going beyond that. What we should say is your compute points, your endpoints, your devices, your apps, everything should have no default connectivity to anything except for an authorization point. And then when it, in every request that it has to connect to something transparent to the end user, because you have to, you have to keep in mind user experience should be uniquely authorized. Now, this is really an authorization approach because I used to joke, I was the CTO of the world's largest keychain manufacturer, right? With RSA. And, And I joke about that because we lionized authentication. And in fact, authentication got separated from the rest of IAM because it was separable and solvable in isolation. And IAM um, as a whole, we've struggled with what to do after authentication. And, and if you look at the industry, authentication became make the barrier at the perimeter as expensive to break as you could. And then hopefully after that, well, we're dealing with a more trusted world. Well, this is what happens after that. This is the authorization world. So now think of it as a switchboard. So when you, you, let's say you're on a laptop somewhere or a phone and you go to do something, it doesn't matter if it's public, for instance, SaaS, like Gmail or salesforce.com or, or, or drive or something. If you go to do that, the first thing it should do is stop you and say, who are you? Prove you are who you say you are. So do the authentication, but bring the context of that endpoint connection. Where are you? What's the, what's the safety or what's the state of your endpoint device? And bring that into the mix. Now, where are you trying to go? And is this something you normally do? So now we're starting to get into the, into the how are you connecting and what, what are you trying to accomplish? And you can start to do things like risk analysis and then policy should apply. Should you be able to do it under what conditions and not just a go, no go, but maybe something in between, like, um, maybe we, something we have called browser isolation, where we say, okay, you can run this app, but we're not going to let anything reach you on the endpoint. We're going to put it in a browser instance as a picture. So you're still working with the application, but you're not going to download anything just in case it's got malicious content, or we don't trust the endpoint and don't want you to get IP downloadable to that strange endpoint that you're on. So now what we're talking about is authorization, meaning what should you be able to do given how you're connecting? And then we extend that not just from public sites, but also to apps that are hosted perhaps by a company in a data center or to in, uh, in something like AWS or in GCP or IOC and so on, right? So uh, Oracle, OIC rather, um, and, or Azure. So, so think of it as the switchboard for authorization. And now you can start to layer more things on top because you've got this unique authorization system for every request. You can say, well, we can actually do data protection on top of that the right way right? We can think of it like DLP 2.0. You can also do things like deception. I call that negative trust. Uh, so it's we want when an attacker compromises the identity or a system to be scared to use a credential they've found or when they try to access a resource like a file or an app. So this is the reason deception, I think, by the way, was so exciting was this notion of negative trust, but it was very hard to do when it first came out and two things I think make it possible now to start turning the tables on the attackers, which is where we started the conversation. One is zero trust puts us in a switchboard mentality where you can inject this. And then the other piece is some of the, uh, the ML and AI toolkit that are available actually makes it so we can name these things like human beings would, and the deception game is on. And now you've said an awful lot, Liz. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you pick it that or, or, or add to it if you want.
0: It's very clear, you know, to someone like myself who is not the technical individual, you know, and the professional on that level, but it it puts it in layman's terms, so to speak, extremely well. So. Well, that's important. Yeah. I thank you so much because yes, for many reasons, which, you know, don't need to go into today.
1: I actually think this is really important, not for security reasons alone, because if you do this right. You suddenly get cheaper IT costs. Ah. Yeah. And you actually, so there's a transformation that can happen in network. What that means in turn is a simpler IT infrastructure, which makes it easier to support and and furthermore, if you do this right, you can now start to be, so you can be not network centric because you're not the, the goal is now not to connect network to network is to connect users to apps. So you can be user centric and the security department can be really about risk decisions rather than controls. And the IT department can be user-centric rather than Mm network-centric, and the R&D or the CTO can now be app-centric. So it is a transformation for everybody. Once you change how you think about this, there's a ton of benefits beyond risk reduction, which is already tangible.
0: So what do you think, and this may be a stupid question, but what do you think the biggest challenges are?
1: Cultural, honestly. The way that we have advanced, generally speaking, is um, incremental. You know, we take what we did last year and we say, well, what are we going to do that's new, right? We've got the muscle memory from everything we've done for previous years. Now we're going to add a little bit on top and a little bit on top. True transformational thinking and change is very hard. Let's not kid ourselves. Nobody likes it. We like the results of it once we're through, Mm -hmm. but it's very hard. I mean, there's a reason why there's a book who moved my cheese, right? It requires cultural change. It requires uh, a commitment. It requires all levels of an organization to brace themselves and do it. The journey isn't easy, but once done is really worth it. When you're talking about orders of magnitude improvement in key metrics, like tickets, how many tickets are opened? How long, what are SLAs like? How much are savings? So yeah, you you can do the, I want to save 10% or I'd like to improve my SLAs by 10%. But if you want to improve by 30 to 50%, it takes a transformation. In other words, you have to do things differently. And Zero Trust is one of those things that can change massively IT, R&D, and security, which means... Yes, you got to figure out the journey. You mentioned that earlier. And the journey begins, I think, usually in one of those places, but to truly be transformative, it's going to take cultural change and alignment among departments. And that's not, that's not trivial. So, you know, this is why I think it has to be made tangible and understandable to business people, not just to us in cyber
0: amazing
1: (laughs) (laughs) and hopefully rather clear but this is one of the reasons that part of my job is external right and thought leadership and things if we're not explaining it simply enough then we probably don't understand it well enough
0: you interpret it extremely well
1: i'll I'll take i'll take that but i'm still gonna try and get better at it but yeah
0: so if we can move on to a, a little bit different topic what do you think are the biggest challenges that CISOs face today
1: Well, um, the first one I'd say isn't actually technical, um, and it's not a non sequitur from what we were just talking about. It is that the, the biggest problem is the gap between the security functions and the business. Mm -hmm. The CISOs, uh, come up through technical ranks generally over 80% of us and uh, the men and women who get to the top, uh, they are seen to be, you know, technical first and foremost. Like I made I made a mistake in one of my jobs, a really bad one when I was first a CISO. I uh, I every time cyber came up at the C level, I leapt on it. Um, I don't mind saying where it was. I was at MicroStrategy. And um because I was proving still that I was the smartest cyber person in the room by default. You know, I had come from what's called a competence culture, where subject matter expertise is the source of authority. Mm-hmm. And so knowing you're a cyber meant that 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 that's what was going to be a leadership in that organization. Nobody at the company I had gone to cared. They all knew that I was the cyber expert. So what was I trying to prove? What I had to prove was that I was a business person. That That needed to be done. And so most of us have to demonstrate that we use more than the word risk. In fact, if you go to shows, you'll hear everyone say... You got to use the word risk, 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 risk. I even used it earlier about being making risk decisions, right? Rather than focusing on control. Mm-hmm. But the truth is we should use words like revenue and cost and margin and customer satisfaction and employee efficiency and corporate strategy mm-hmm. rather than risk, 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 risk. And we should attend everything that's not cyber. So we should never say this. Oh well, cyber's not coming up at the meeting, so I'm not going. Never say that. And in fact, it doesn't matter what your function is. If you're in a C-level or a board meeting and you say, I met with three customers last week and they said, you have everyone's attention in the room. It doesn't matter if you're a CFO. It doesn't matter if you're a chief legal counsel. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, in support. It doesn't matter if you're the CISO. That is the source of authority in almost every company you can think of. So get out where the pain is and be close to the business. If instead you're focusing on how many viruses you've stopped or what your MTTR is, then you're still a hobbyist. So I think, Liz, to answer your question, is the first and biggest problem for most of the industry is lack of alignment with the business or perception that we're business people first. And what we should do is give up, even in our own departments, being the smartest cyber person, stop proving it. Like you're at the top of the food chain. You have nothing to prove. Your lieutenants should be better than you at this stuff. Be a mentor rather than the expert. You can't be number one at IR, at GRC, at IAM, at DLP. Why are you bothering anymore? Because because your job demands you do something else now. And that's so hard for me to say, given where I started from. But it's true.
0: Working in cybersecurity as many years as I have, I've seen that evolvement transpire um tremendously really and there are a lot of CISOs that are struggling with that change of being more business minded well
1: well, it's so hard we used to go do they understand what we do and now we're becoming the suit but let's be honest if we're doing our job and we're meeting with non-cyber people which we should um years ago Jim Routh said if you're only meeting with the CIO you're doing it wrong I think he said you're you're doomed to failure to be precise yeah um So if we're doing that, how do we have the time to be on Wireshark? How do we have the time to be doing malware reverse engineering? We don't. So who are we kidding?
0: No, that's true. So this is an interesting question. Some people will appreciate, maybe others won't, but how do CISOs have confos with their board and with their peers to say. I'm not the consumer of toys. Do they want my toys? (laughs) In other words, most toys are old and need to be replaced. How can you adjust the budget and get approval for the new toys?
1: I love this question. Look, um, so I sometimes draw a a picture in your head, a triangle on the whiteboard. And I, I put at the bottom of the triangle all the old toys, right? I put like antivirus and firewall and stuff that we need. I'm never throwing it out but the older stuff that's less frequently updated. And as we go up the triangle or this pyramid, I I put more recent things or things that require more frequent updates and more intelligence and that actually help me deal with more current risks, more adaptive things. Now, I'll draw a line somewhere close to the top through this pyramid, and I'll say below this line is what we call statutory spend. You have no control over it. It's a recurring annual bill. Above this line is what we call Um, discretionary spend. This is the stuff that you can, to some degree, determine. And your job is either to move this line down, or sometimes I'll say invert the pyramid. And the way you're going to do this is you're going to go talk to your peers, especially your CFO, and say, I need help reducing the spend on these items, not to zero below the line, but year over year, these are commoditizing. So a commodity is something that is the same quality from everywhere only really differentiated from price and in terms of price. And, and there are many places I can go to get it, right? Take take antivirus. I'm just picking on that. There are many things at the bottom of the pyramid, Um, but there are over 40 vendors of functionally, roughly the same value. I'm just saying, right? There are, there are differentiated antivirus vendors. Absolutely. So put them higher in the, in the pyramid, but by and large, most of it's at the bottom of the pyramid. And so you should go to your, your CFO and say, I need you to assign me purchasing people because they're really good at this. No matter how much we flatter ourselves, their purchasing people are better if they aren't already there. And say, I'm going to put this out and either to RFP or I want you to help me get 30% back. And some of it moves up and some of it goes back to you. And, and, And this strategy will move that discretionary line down or put another way, will start to move the bulge of your spending pyramid up, start to invert it. And if we go from, let's just arbitrarily say, yeah, 20% of your spend is discretionary to a situation where 30 or 40% is, that's massive, right? You've effectively doubled to go from 20 to 40, what the spend you have to attack risk is. And this isn't just true of tools. This is true of, of being able to get efficiency out of your employees. How many people do you have doing repeatable rote tasks that add little value? Well, how do you automate in a safe way, I did a presentation on mirror chess about why you have to be careful with that years ago. But how how do you automate and get your processes better and your people's time better to get the same, you could draw a pyramid for both process waste and pyramid for people's time. How do you get up level those? How do you move that discretionary spend line down? And that's what you should be doing as a CISO, by the way. That is your job, aligned to the business and move those discretionary lines down. That's why I think that's a wonderful question, Liz.
0: That's incredible. So do you agree that in the past, most CISOs did not work with the CFO frequently and now they must, or? Oh yeah.
1: I mean, originally we were usually a buried network function and then maybe we crept up to directorships, right? And we were part of the CIO or some folks maybe were in another department. So yeah, historically that has not been the case and you know, it's a shame because there are other departments that deal with risk and they quantify it. And so this is a word of warning, right? It's very good when we quantify risk, but we must quantify it in a manner similar to how the other departments do. So we should be talking to the other departments that quantify risks, risk. And so those are legal operations and finance. And so those are the natural places to go to. Now, I'll get a bit more specific too. There are places that deal with intelligent adaptive risk. Now, that is legal and actually sales. And so operationally, we need to be identified as that because years ago, I met a CIO who said to me, Sam, when will you have a 1U rack mountable security solution? Tell me the price on that and I'll pay it and be done. I said, I wish we had that. Really, I do. I'd do something else for a living. And we would have solved the problem that I outlined, we outlined at the beginning of this uh, recording. Um, I said, but that's that's not feasible right now. So the reason is that the opponent's adaptable, meaning if you found a solution, its effectiveness would start to go down as they innovated around it. And that's true in sales. We have an intelligent opponent, competitors. And it's true in legal. We have an intelligent opponent, right? And and, and so as, as lawyers find new strategies for torts and such, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm sure there's a lawyer out there nodding and going, yeah, that's roughly right. Um, so what we need to do is understand how those are managed by the business culturally and align with them and get in discussion with them because that's how our, our type of risk will be understood. And so while we can contribute to the other five things I mentioned earlier, you know, the revenue, the margin and so on, um, from our domain risk, we need to align to how those other types of risks are risk are quantified. And rather than approach the five nines of it, where there isn't an intelligent opponent. Instead, we need to make sure that we have the same sort of frequency and, and scrutiny where where the business has intelligent opponents.
0: Amazing. Also, and you've just stated this, CISOs really have to work much more collaboratively with the teams mm. in order to accomplish the goals. Yeah.
1: My, my, my dad told me something years ago. He said, you know, he, he, he said, you, you got to worry about your boss. Or you'll you lose your job, but you'll do that. And he said, you know, you, people who work for you will have to worry about you or they'll lose their job and they'll do that. But the people you need the most are your peers, yeah, your lateral relationships, and nothing is going to make you worry about them. You won't lose your job because, you know, they're not going to be reviewing you and you're not going to review them in most companies, but you will fail at your job if you don't take care of those relationships.
0: All right. No, it's a fact. It's a fact. And that's how things have evolved in that particular role, for sure. So, Sam, in closing, if you were to give a piece of advice to CISOs out there for them to be more impactful, where would you recommend they start?
1: Well, I I would draw that pyramid, first of all. And then I would look at what technologies in some specific areas, um, identity, endpoint, network can turn the tables. And, um, I would specifically recommend zero trust, of course, and zero trust, uh, and look at ZTNA. Um, the reason is in my experience, that's probably one of the, it's one of the reasons I came to, to Zscaler because right now I think it's the, one of the things that can move the needle the most. Then I would, I, I would, so I would draw that pyramid and I would, I would engage in conversations about how to move that discretionary line down. And then, because you want to be in a situation where you're picking the bets to make at the top of that pyramid, rather than lamenting the money lost at the bottom. And, uh, that's strategic thinking, and then go make friends. Think about your lieutenants, make sure that they're the best they can be. That means operational excellence. That means the voice of cyber. That means an agent for change in the company. Right. think about those things in your lieutenants, then spend your time laterally Really, really, really think about those relationships with other risk groups, um, with the CFO's office and legal counsel. Think about that very carefully and get close to the pain in the business. Align with the business. If you do that, then you're on a really good path.
0: Oh, that's great advice. And I thank you for that. My pleasure. Before we end, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: No, there's so much we could talk about, Liz, but thank you for having me on. I think we've covered enough for half, a mere half hour. So
0: uh, right. <laughs> uh, thanks for
1: having me on, and hopefully we'll talk again about another subject. But uh, keeping it focused like this, I think, helps get to some key points.
0: Absolutely. So, Sam, it was such a pleasure having you, you know, as a as a guest today. And you're such an incredible leader, a mentor, a role model. Oh, You've accomplished so much in your career. And as you say, you've got lots more, you know. Lots more to do. Lots more to do. So thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. Thanks, Liz. So that's a wrap for today. Many thanks for all of you that joined us today. And I wish everyone a happy holiday and happy Thanksgiving, Sam.
1: Happy Thanksgiving.